0: Welcome back to another episode of the Abide in the Word podcast. We are your hosts again, Lauren Dick, and I'm here with Pastor Mike Hovland.
1: Hello, welcome.
0: So today we will continue on in our examining Calvinism series that we started with our last episode, where we looked at God's sovereignty and His decree. And today we're going to dive in headfirst in what's called the tulip or the five points of Calvinism, or as we prefer to call them, the doctrines of grace. And we'll be looking at The T, which stands for total depravity, and again in response to the track that went out in our community here. And maybe by way of introduction, I will read this little portion of the track. So, the T of the tulip stands for total depravity. By total depravity, Calvinism means that all people are so spiritually dead that they can neither repent nor believe. So, God, in eternity past, chose a select few of all people. Who would, ne- who would ever be born. That is called election. It simply means they are chosen. These few he would cause to be born again, and after they are born again, they will then repent and believe. All the rest of mankind, God reprobated. God made them in a such a way that they cannot repent or believe. This means that by far the majority of mankind can't repent. You can preach to them all you want, but there is no hope for them. Not only that, but God predestined them to hell. He predestined them to commit suicide if that is what they end up doing. He predestined them to die at whatever time they die, and from whatever they die. They have no choice in anything. All they do has been predetermined. End quote.
1: Great. Well thanks. Thanks for reading that, Lauren. I just kind of jump in on that right away and um you know, it's funny. This this really doesn't get into very much into the total depravity and what what we're actually talking about there. What you just read there ends with all they do has been predetermined, and we talked about that last time. And I so there's a lot in here that I would agree with. There's some things that I would I would want to word differently, but that's kind of that's that's what this tract is, and it kind of jumps off of total depravity and gets into election and reprobation and and God's sovereignty and things. Anything that you wanted to kind of point out in there as we just kind of get going on this?
0: Not beyond those were my really exact same thoughts. As it. it talks about total depravity and how men can either repent or believe. I think by the time we're done today, we'll see from scripture that that's where that idea comes from. The, the inability, total inability of man to be able to believe in God and repent apart from a work of God. But like you said, it, this this portion of the track then jumps into election. It jumps into reprobation. It jumps into predestination. All these things, which all do tie together ultimately, but in taking it in sequential order, we we also better see why that's important. Why we need to see that, right?
1: Yeah, I think uh, I think it's funny that it says all people are so spiritually dead. As though there's like different states of deadness, right? And we're going to see that, that we are spiritually dead, and that the only way that we can repent and believe, or that we will repent and believe that we want to, is if we are born again. God has to do a work. And the reason God has to do a work is because of what we call total depravity. The question that we really want to get to, though, is, is that what Scripture teaches you know, I, I might kind of say that there's different ways I'd want to word some of this. Uh, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't put reprobated as like an active verb, the rest of mankind, God, reprobated. I would probably instead of saying can't repent, I might say they they won't repent, they're unwilling to repent. But if somebody's unwilling by nature, then it's impossible
0: for them. So, I, you know, that's fine. Right. Um, and that really, again, highlights the importance of the the new creation that that god makes us right when when he saves someone we're a new creation he removes the heart of stone gives us a heart of flesh in which then our desires change and again we we looked at that in the last episode regarding our will john eight forty four your you are of your father the devil and your will is to do his desire yeah. this is this is the desire of sinful man and going back to that first sentence or the second sentence that, that I read there, by total depravity, Calvinism means that all people are so spiritually dead that they can neither repent nor believe. That's biblical. That's, that's something that we'll see very clearly today is what the Bible teaches. Mm-hmm. Now, like you say, so spiritually dead, are there different degrees of spiritual deadness? I, I doubt that even the writer of this tract would hold a position like that. Mm. So what we then are looking at is the spiritual dead, who they are, And what that means before God, right? Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: This tract asked a question that I I really like, that I think is important for all of us. Do I desire the truth above all else? And uh, I think that's what we want to look at. What does the scripture actually teach about the state of man and what God's working with when he saves? And that's kind of where we're going. So the doctrines of grace really focus on the doctrine of salvation, um, Calvinism, and arminianism both really fundamentally they're they're dealing with the doctrine of salvation and so we're asking you know who is man what is man what is god working with what does god save us out of um this this little thing that you just read kind of presents man almost as like this neutral thing Mm -hmm. and it's like well god reprobated some people but we're not a neutral thing that can kind of go either way right we're going to see that we are A wicked thing if i'm going to stay in that we're we're wicked therefore god doesn't have to really even do anything to reprobate us all he has to do is just kind of leave us to ourselves and we're going to go headlong into hell
0: by our own nature and by our own will we walk away from god we reject god which we would then say is because of the doctrine of total depravity the idea that that we are depraved that's why we reject god that's why we by our own volition choose to not follow him less he intercede. Yeah. So as we look at the doctrines of grace, and as I mentioned earlier, often the acronym TULIP is, is used to define it, T being total depravity, U being unconditional election, L being limited atonement, I being irresistible grace, and then again, the P being the perseverance of the saints. As we look at that, we see the U-L-I-P is all about what God does the election, the atonement, his grace, and him persevering us. And the T, total depravity, that we're looking at today, this is about us. And I think we would say that once we understand the total depravity, once we understand the T, the U-L-I-P, only fall into perfect logical order. yeah, And help us to see how then, and really when we look at the T, by the end of this, our question should be, how, how then can I be saved? Yeah. Right? How then can I be saved? And that's where we see how God works and how God has brought about the ability for salvation, the opportunity, and how he has made it sure. Not just a possibility, but he has made it sure. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And and so that's really good, Lauren. When we, when we see what it is that we're totally depraved, when, when we see what Scripture teaches about man, we're going to ask exactly that. Well, then how then can I be saved? And the answer is, to kind of get ahead in our series, the answer is God by grace has to take the initiative and do something supernatural in our lives. And, uh, and, and he does that for the people that he's chosen. Now, we're going to talk about that next time, but let's just go and let's see who man is. What is man capable of doing or not doing according to the scripture uh, by nature? And and again, this is the doctrine of sin, and, and so we're kind of wondering what happened in the fall of man, how did Adam's sin affect the rest of mankind, and, uh, and that's really what we're, we're talking about here.
0: So as an introduction here, a quote from John MacArthur and Richard Mayhew in their Biblical Doctrine textbook, they write, the doctrine of sin obviously affects the doctrine of salvation, since sinners need to be rescued but are unable to save themselves because they are profoundly and pervasively sinful sinners are in need of salvation by grace without salvation by divine grace alone man not only fails his god intended relationship and functions but also if left is left to face the eternal wrath of god okay so
1: yeah you know again obviously it affects doctrine of salvation when we understand who we are and what what is necessary again is salvation by grace. But let's see if if this is what scripture teaches. So when we when we start talking about the doctrine of sin, there's a lot of things we could talk about. We could talk about how, uh, you know, what sin is. We could talk about how sin originated in the world, and 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 then how it it spread to all of Adam's descendants. We're kind of we're just skipping through most of that. We just want to talk about really what what we call total depravity. But just briefly, what is sin? And um, I've got a quote here from Wayne Grudem. I'll let you go ahead
0: with that, Lauren. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. The definition of sin given above specifies that sin is a failure to conform to God's moral law, not only in action and in attitude, but also in our moral nature. Our very nature, the internal character that is the essence of who we are as persons can also be sinful.
1: and That's that's really what, what we're thinking about here. We're, we're talking about the nature of man. So we're not only talking about what we do and say and think, right? our attitudes and our actions, but we're also talking about who we are. And as we look at some of these scriptures, we're going to see these verbs of being like you were, you are, you are of your father the devil, you're of the yeah. devil. This kind of Language
0: speaks about our nature. It really gets to the heart, so to speak, the heart of man. From our inner being, everything is, is infected and affected by sin.
1: Yeah. yeah. Our heart, our mind, our will, our emotions, the, the internal center of who we are, the way that we think about life, all of that is sinful mm-hmm. so that we are worthy of death and that's that's what we're talking about when we're talking about the doctrine of sin our our very nature is culpable they would say we we are guilty by nature because we are born contrary to god
0: the apostle paul tells us that the wages of sin is death and so if into our very being into our very core our very nature the, the everything that we are is infected by sin and and really defined by our sinful state our fallen state then the the wages of sin being death god is absolutely just and fair in punishing anyone in hell for eternity mm-hmm. sending anyone to hell because of our sin nature
1: yeah i've got a quote from uh, lewis Burkhoff here and uh this is from his systematic theology uh he says by that first sin, Adam became the bondservant of sin. That sin carried permanent pollution with it, and a pollution which, because of the solidarity of the human race, would affect not only Adam but all his descendants as well. As a result of the fall, the father of the race could only pass on a depraved human nature to his offspring. From that unholy source, sin flows on as an impure stream to all the generation of men. Pollution or sorry, it should be polluting everyone and everything with which it comes into contact. So Adam's sin spread to all of the human race because there was this connection between us and Adam when he sinned, we sinned, we sinned in him. And that this is kind of talking about the transmission of sin that I didn't really want to get into too much. But but I think it's helpful that Burkhoff says like this from this source, this unholy source, Adam. All of this pollution affects everyone downstream, and you just if you just go to Genesis three, you see the, the sin of man, Genesis four, there's this, this kind of list of, of the the genealogy from Adam onwards, and, and every one of those guys dies, mm-hmm. and, and they die because they're guilty of, of sin. And so um, when, when we're talking about this pollution, there's, there's really kind of two parts to original sin. Uh, first is the guilt of it, secondly is the pollution of it. Murkoff says this on in his Systematic Theology, page 244, he says, This sin is called original sin, one, because it is derived from the original root of the human race, two, because it's present in the life of every individual from the time of birth, and therefore cannot be regarded as the result of imitation, and three, because it is the inward root of all the actual sins that defile the life of man. That's why we call this original sin, original sin. Comes from, the, comes from Adam. It's present in every individual from the time of their birth. It's original with every person. And from that nature, all the sins that, that happen in a person's life flow.
0: Wayne Grudem writes, this idea that all men sinned means that God thought of us all as having sinned when Adam disobeyed, is further indicated by the next two verses in Romans five thirteen 13-14. Here Paul points out that from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, people did not have God's written law. Though their sins were not counted as infractions of the law, they still died. The fact that they died is very good proof that God counted people guilty on the basis of Adam's sin.
1: If you want to, if you know, for the listeners, if you want to dig in deeper to that, look at Romans 5, 12 to uh, probably about 21 there. That whole section, but especially verses 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, just really shows how sin was transmitted through Adam and how because of that sin we are all counted guilty. Um, Berk, or uh, sorry, Burkhoff, Herman Bavink explains it this way. He says, quote, Sin and guilt are inseparable. If sin is lawlessness, it is punishable. And conversely, where there is guilt and punishment, there has to be sin. Original sin, however, is such that death is its consequence and that it makes us unworthy of the fellowship of God and his heaven." That is, it is inherently impure, the occasion and source of many sins, and is presumably therefore itself sin. Otherwise, God would be unjust for punishing with death the wages of sin. Romans six twenty three, that which is no sin and does not deserve death. So God punishes with death the the wages of sin. And so, and again, what we're trying to say here is just that by nature. We have inherited the guilt of Adam's sin. Mm -hmm. And and and, you know, I I have a a John Piper quote in my mind. I can't quite grab it exactly, but he talks about this this mysterious connection between Adam's sin and, and us. And even if that's all we can say is that there's a mysterious connection between what happened with Adam and what happened with us, whether we can explain that or not, we see that as a reality because everyone dies and because everyone commits sin unless you know unless they were born early or something like that right but but really everyone is is guilty and we know that because they die and then secondly everyone is polluted and we know that because as soon as they're old enough they sin they sin and so if even if that's all we can say about it that's really all we need to say in this episode but there's a guilt of sin that comes to us and then secondly there's in this original sin that comes to us through adam there is what, what theologians call pollution. So let's, let's talk about the pollution of sin.
0: Here's a quote from Louis Burkhoff in his Systematic Theology, page 233. By pollution, we understand the inherent corruption to which every sinner is subject. This is a reality in the life of every individual, end quote. So we're talking about the, the corruption that, that's in our lives. He goes on to say, while the existence of original sin has met with widespread denial, the presence of actual sin in the life of man is generally admitted.
1: And again, Bavink says a very similar thing there. Certainly, if this doctrine is clearly elucidated, it is daily confirmed by everyone's experience and vindicated by the witness of its opponents themselves. And just to kind of like, let's just stop there for a minute and just, just think about the world that we live in. You know the, the the world I don't know if it's as popular now maybe you could probably tell me Lauren if it is but when I was growing up they they used to you know say we we're basically good people right the 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 psychologists right. and the world would would tell us that we are good but if you just look around for 10 minutes we are we are bad people there's something wrong with humans because mm-hmm. we are wicked and we see the the consequences of it all over the place and uh and that's what we're talking about here if we how do you explain the the nature of the world, the society that we live in? It, it it comes from the people that are in this society and something is fundamentally wrong with the people because each and every one of us are sinners. And so even if, you know, people sometimes will reject this doctrine of original sin and they want to say that, we well, no, we're basically good or we have this ability to choose right and wrong or whatever, to some extent we do and we're responsible for our choices, but there's something fundamentally wrong with the human race and mm-hmm. the scripture perfectly explains it. it. Seems like nobody else can explain it and, and why? Because they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Right. But the scripture explains the situation that we, we see. So even if we want to deny what the scripture says, just have a look around. When this doctrine, as Herman Bavink says, is clearly explained, everyone has to agree that something's fundamentally wrong.
0: And we see that, and we see that in all of creation, the corruption in all of creation, death, decay, all that is all around us, right? And sadly, you know, you talked about the the idea, the concept, maybe in in modern psychology, whatever it may be, that we are basically good people. And the idea often is, is you know, we are we're good people. Everyone's a good, you know, you see that innocent baby that's born, and everyone's a good person, right? That's such a precious child, and it is. It is because it's made in the image of God, but it still has the sin nature. and But the idea then is, is we are basically good people, then bad things happen to us. And that's what makes us then deviate from our goodness and, and do bad things. Now, sadly, a lot of that kind of wrong thought has crept into much of the church, much of evangelicals, much of what we see in Christian counseling. People are identified as as good people with good heart, good intentions, but then the devil made me do it, or so-and-so treated me this way, and then I responded in this way. It's always kind of pointing outward, where the Bible points inward. The Bible points at ourselves. This is where the issue lies. The fact is you're not a good person, and that's why we do bad things. Not because someone else made me do it, but because I want to do those things.
1: Yeah. And if you want to trace back, okay, so let's say something bad happened to you and sometimes you know bad things that happen to us, evil things uh set examples for us and we do we do evil because of that. Yeah. But if we want to kind of follow that chain back, well how did somebody who's good do bad to you because they're not good? Exactly. Right? And if you tr- follow that line all
0: the way back, it leads right back to Adam. And the person still chooses to respond in a sinful manner. Yeah. It's still that person's own desires, his own heart, his own lust of the flesh that cause him to act sinfully.
1: To respond sinfully even to sin is still a sin. Yeah. Okay, so now what I want to do is I just, I, you know, to the listener here, I want to overwhelm you with the scripture and, and just to see how pervasive this language is from scripture on the wickedness of men. And so, I don't know, should we like maybe alternate here through this
0: part, Lauren, and just kind of go verse by verse? Sure, let's do that. We have the same list in front of us, So First verse we have is Titus chapter 1, verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Okay, so here's,
1: you know, these people that Paul calls the unbelieving, and he calls them the defiled as well. So unbelieving people... To them, there's nothing pure, but even their minds and even their consciences, even their conscience that tells them right and wrong, there's a defiling effect that's happened to that. That And so from the, from the inside out, the unbelieving, at least, are, are defiled. Now, we'll get into later how do they come from that to be believing and to be pure. Well, we'll talk about that in another time. But just see that the mind and the conscience is defiled. Uh, Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So there, there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. There's not one person that exists like that, according
0: to the author of Ecclesiastes. And as we read these and, and look through them, we put together, we're trying to paint a very big picture. Of what the Bible says about our sinful state. And so if there's none, no man on earth who does good and never sins, and previously we read the conscience and minds are defiled, that means all of humanity has a defiled mind and conscience. We know that all people then are affected this way in, in this area. So there's we we can't make a separation between well, it's just those people or those people or those people. We, we read earlier, we talked about earlier, the wages of sin is death. There's no man who never sins, we, you just read. Yeah. Therefore, every man on earth, every man, woman, and child has earned death by being a sinner, mm-hmm. right? So again, as, as we, as, as Pastor Mike says, we overwhelm you with these scripture passages to, to show, Just it just starts building one upon the other, precept upon precept, this big picture of how sinful we are to our very core, our very nature.
1: Yeah. And even if, we, even if we just stay with Titus for a little longer, to the defiled and unbelieving, well, every single person comes into the world unbelieving. So at some point, every single person yes. is has their mind and conscience defiled. Now, how they get rescued out of that, we'll talk about that another time.
0: And again, that's where the... ULIP really builds on the tea, this idea of our sin nature total depravity right First kings chapter 8 verse 46 if they sin against you for there is no one who does not sin
1: no one who does not sin and psalm 43 verse 2 the psalmist says enter not into judgment with your servant for no one living
0: is righteous before you proverbs 20 verse 9 who can say I have made my heart pure? I am clean from sin. Again, a rhetorical question here. Yeah, we know the answer is no one can say that. Yeah,
1: nobody can say that. And so even when Scripture talks about the righteous or whatever, they, it doesn't mean ever that they're totally pure from their sin. First uh, John one eight, speaking about the righteous, we're talking about believers here in First John one eight, and. Uh, John says to them, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And so we can't even say as believers that we have no sin. No, we have sin, and uh, the truth makes us recognize that. And then just a bit later in verse 10, he says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So all that we're going to look at tonight, or or You know, whatever time you're listening to this podcast, everything that we're going to look at is telling us from God's word that we have sinned. But if we say that we haven't, then we are making God a liar. God says that we are depraved sinner.
0: Isn't it fantastic how in that one passage that you just read, God annihilates the idea of sinless perfectionism that some hold to? Yeah. That as believers we can completely cease from sin? God says that's not true. And in fact, if we say that, then we make him a liar. So I yeah, don't want to do that. it's just one of those doctrines where it's a little bit of a, a, a rabbit trail here, but <laughs> one of those doctrines where you just wonder, like, how do people come to that when yeah. the Bible says something like this? Almost right?
1: No, no awareness of their own hearts. Yeah. Now, these next verses are, are also quoted in Romans chapter three. So go ahead and go ahead and read Psalm
0: 14, one to three, Lauren. The fool says in his heart, "There is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. there is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Now we'll talk about that
1: in a minute, but read Psalm 53, 2 and three as well, because those kind of go with it.
0: God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So then Paul,
1: Paul in Romans chapter one, he he starts with chapter one, kind of 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness and and he he argues kind of starting with the gentiles that all of them are sinners then he turns to the jew and he says hey you guys have the law but you break the law because you're sinners as well and then he kind of brings the whole thing to a um a close there in chapter three and he he presents really the old testament um or not the but a a a, a a little bit of the Old Testament evidence for the depravity of man, and he brings it all together in Romans 3, 10 to 18. And he starts off in, in verse 10. It says, As it is written, and then he says, None is righteous, no, not one. Now you you won't actually find that in the Old Testament unless that's a summary of, of Ecclesiastes 7.20. Right? We had remember we read Ecclesiastes 7.20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Um, So there is none is righteous, no, not one. So either Paul's kind of summarizing Ecclesiastes 7.20, or he's just kind of taking the the whole testimony of Scripture and kind of summarizing it in a short little statement. But Paul's argument is Scripture teaches nobody is righteous. And then maybe I'll have you read 11 to 18 for us, Lauren, or just 11 and 12
0: for now, actually. Paul continues, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one.
1: Kind of just, you know, it's just easy to quote Matthew Barrett here. He says, he he kind of tells us in his book called Salvation by Grace, uh, a, a book I'd highly recommend. He says, notice the universality of depravity is emphasized by the words all, together, none, and not even one. And so the idea here is: is this affects every single person. Nobody's escaped what Scripture sa- says in these verses. Every single person. There's not one righteous. There's not one who escapes. There's not one person out there that's seeking after God. Um, they all have turned aside. They all have uh, become worthless. Not one of them it does good. Not even. Not even one. Like that's mm-hmm. just,
0: just strong language. Very important here, I find in just in having conversations about this, to look at Paul's again use of this language that that you, that you just mentioned, how that how it emphasizes it in the strong language. No one seeks for God. So if we go back a little bit to that track, the idea that Calvinism teaches that we are spiritually dead, and and I'm not quoting it right now, but essentially that no one seeks for God. That's why we believe that. Because the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit in God's Holy Word, says, no one understands, no one seeks for God. So in, in our sinful state, in the state of being depraved, in the state of being spiritually dead, there is no man who is actively seeking for God. Not the God of the Bible. There are many who seek for a God, and we see multiple religions around the world to represent that. Yeah. But they're not seeking for the God of the Bible. they're seeking for an idol, the God of their own lust, desires, um, often one that really reflects them and, and their likes and dislikes as well, right
1: Yeah yeah so yeah, really good, really important So then as we kind of continue through this Romans 3:13 to 18, just as we read it, as Lauren reads it for us here, notice the language that just affects that, that talks about the, the whole of who we are.
0: every part of us has been affected by sin. Just
1: kind of note the the language here, the, the throat, it talks about their tongues, their lips, their mouth, their feet, their paths, their way. Again, paths and way kind of speak about their feet, kind of uh, a metaphor for the way the, that they're going, the direction that they're going. There's no fear of God before their eyes. It's just every part of man has been mm-hmm. affected by sin. And so they are, because of that, because their nature has been affected, the things that they do, the things that they think, who they are is evil before God. They are there's no fear of God before their eyes. So again, yet yeah, like there's not this person out there who's um, just wants to know the one true God and worship Him and follow Him and seek Him. Instead, they have turned aside. Mm-hmm. All of them together have turned aside, and they have become worthless from God's perspective.
0: And even there, we we would believe that most people listening to this would agree with that. Because that's why, you know, even the call, the Great Commission, to bring the gospel to the whole world, to bring the gospel to all all the furthest reaches of of the world, wherever man exists, the idea of missions exists because men everywhere need to hear this gospel. They're not seeking the Lord through creation, through nature, through any of that. They're, They're seeking idols. But this is why... The Great Commission exists. This is why we want to spread the the name of God, the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, to all these people, because they, they they won't find Him in and of themselves, they won't seek him, they won't understand, and as again, this strong language that we see in this passage in Romans three, we, un, we see very clearly there's something there's something that man needs in order to be saved, something outside of himself. Something that's not infected by sin
1: mm-hmm. so just kind of again taking up this this pervasive language here um, macarthur and mayhew say that sin is total or pervasive in that all components of a person are polluted by sin no part escape this includes all of man's thinking reasons desires sin is total or pervasive in that all components of a person are polluted by sin No part escapes. This includes all of man's thinking, reason, desires, and affection. Or Wayne Grudem says it this way. It's not just that some parts of us are sinful and others are pure. Rather, every part of our being is affected by sin. Our intellects, our emotions, and desires, our hearts, center of our desires and decision making, our goals and motives, and even our physical body. And that's really what we've we've seen in scripture here so far and so um kind of with that that's that's really what we're talking about here with with total depravity and um lewis burkhoff now let, let's just kind of let's just take a minute here and explain the the words um total depravity and what what we mean by it uh, and i yeah maybe i'll maybe i'll do it from in the words of lewis burkhoff um or do
0: you want to read that lauren this phrase is often misunderstood, speaking of total depravity, and therefore calls for careful discrimination. Negatively, it does not imply one, that every man is as thoroughly depraved as he can possibly become, two, that the sinner has no innate knowledge of God, nor a conscience that discriminates between good and evil, three, that sinful man does not often admire virtuous character and actions in others or is incapable of disinterested affections and actions in his relations with his fellow men, nor, for, that every unregenerate man will, in virtue of his inherent sinfulness, indulge in every form of sin. It often happens that one form excludes the others.
1: So, that's what it, That's what we're not talking about. We're, we're not trying to say that everyone is as evil as he could be, Or that that man doesn't have any knowledge of God, even when we talk about men don't not don't not seeking God. It's not that men don't know God; they do know. They have a conscience. Men often will even do good things for other men in Mm -hmm. in the kind of like the civil sphere or the world, but they're not doing it out of love for God. They're not doing it to worship God. They're doing it for their own selfish reasons. And so, so that's what we're not saying when we're talking about total depravity. So don't don't misunderstand.
0: What are we saying? Quoting Lewis Burkhoff again, positively, it does indicate one that the inherent corruption extends to every part of man's nature, to all the faculties and powers of both soul and body, and two, that there is no spiritual good that is good in relation to God, in the sinner at all, but only perversion. Good, there, there's
1: no spiritual good in relation to God. and that's what we're really talking about. When, when we're talking about this this nature of sin, this doctrine of sin, we're comparing it, not to what men think, but we're, we're thinking about this in terms of what God thinks, the holy God. And when he looks at man, he sees wickedness. And, and really to show that, let's, let's read Genesis 6, 5, a really powerful verse there.
0: The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Didn't take very long, it
1: seems, and, and the wickedness of man is great in the earth. And, and look at that language again. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And on that, Matthew Barrett, in his book Salvation by Grace, he says, quote, God could have said man's heart was corrupt, but instead he says every imagination of the thoughts of the heart was only evil continually accentuating the intensiveness of depravity. Mm-hmm. And actually, with that, we should read um, Genesis 8, 8.21 that kind of follows after
0: the flood. Genesis 8.21 reads, And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth neither will i ever strike ever again strike down every living creature as i have done
1: right but yeah notice again the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth and that's what we're that's what we're talking about when we're talking about total depravity lauren do you have you got mark seven twenty to 23 for us
0: and he said what comes out of a person is what defiles him for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. So yeah, when you look out at the world, and you see
1: the, the sexual immorality, and the theft, and the murder, and all of these wicked things that are happening in the world, and you ask, where does this come from? Well, Jesus tells us it comes from the heart of man. It comes from within. It's not from without. It's not things outside of us. Mm-hmm. The problem is inside of us. Again, all these evil things come from within and they defile the person. So our own heart ends up defiling us because of, because of who we are. We act out of that. We act according to our nature. And, and the actions that come out of a corrupt nature are corrupt and they defile us, mm.
0: and, and we just go further and further into well, sin. And such an important passage there to understand. This is, as you said, this is what comes from the heart. These aren't outside things that impact us. The, this is what comes out of our heart. And it just reminds me of a, a slide I saw in a presentation from so-called Christian counseling organization, where the, the image was, you know, the picture of a man with his heart, and and the the sins that were all listed were outside of him and in the inside of the heart it showed man's heart was wounded it was hurt it had pain it had emotional pain parent wounds father wounds mother wounds these kinds of things and then the fruit of that was the sins and then it had listed on this on this image that the sins were outside of the man so the sins didn't define who the who the person is and this goes back to what we talked about earlier a little bit where the idea that man is basically good, it's things that happen to us that then cause us to act in sinful manner. Well, the Bible tells us that these things are from the heart. This is what the human heart is. This is why we need a savior. We don't need to be saved from the hurts of what others have done to us. We need to be saved from sin that dwells inside of us. Yeah. and And that's where a person could really say, you know, that those kinds of counseling methods, they completely miss the mark, and they mislead and deceive people because they give people a completely unbiblical perspective of who man is. And if the intent is is to lead someone like that to Christ, you're starting from a perspective where they're not sinners. As much as you may use that language, you've just shown them that they're not sinners from the heart. Those are just reactions. They've become victims. Exactly. They've become victims. And then it always boils down to, I'm this way because of what others have done to me. Lord, help me forgive others. Help me forgive great-grandpa. Help me forgive my grandmother. Help me forgive my father, my mother. Help me forgive, help me forgive my brother or sister who did something against me and made me do this. And so they've become victims. And in that way, their sin is viewed, again, as something that's not really their fault. Yes, I sinned. But now I know why I sin because you did something to me. And blame you blame others. And and
1: yeah. really even when we're dealing with believers to grow in sanctification, we need to recognize and take responsibility for our own actions, for our own sin. It's because of even though we might be saved, it's because of the remnants of that evil heart that these things come out. Otherwise there would be no sexual mm-hmm. immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness.
0: And sin still dwells in our flesh. Yeah. Correct? Yeah. Romans 6, sin no longer has dominion over us. There's a separation between the flesh and the spirit now through salvation that we have where sin still dwells in our flesh and we are, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So we will often still succumb to its temptations and stuff like that, but that's where we can grow and be sanctified and gain victory over that. in understanding that though the remnant of sin still lingers in this mortal body, and ultimately that's what we look forward to in our glorification is the the new body that is completely free from sin, and, and so there's no remnant left inside of us to desire that. Yeah, so re- very important
1: verse. Uh, you know, Ephesians 4:17 to 19, very important as well. Paul says there that, that we shouldn't walk like the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their, their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And what's going on in this verse is there's these Gentiles and we're not to live like them if we're a believer. How do they live? Well, there's a futility of mind. And why are they futile in their mind? Well, because they're darkened in their understanding. And why do they have a darkened understanding? Well, they're, they're alienated from the life of God. And... This is because of the ignorance that is in them. And note that word, it's in them. There's like an internal ignorance in these people that comes from the hardness of heart. And there's so, so this is kind of a a series of of effects. And it it really, it kind of works backwards. We usually argue the, the opposite way that Paul does here. But there's a hardness of heart in the unbeliever that leads them to this internal ignorance. And because of this ignorance, they're alienated from the, God, the life of God. They're separate from God. And because they're separate from God, they, they have this darkened understanding. God is light, but their understanding, they're, again, they're, this is language that speaks about their minds, the way that they think. They are darkened, and because of that, they walk in futility. They do things that are empty and vain. They don't glorify God, but it all kind of flows from this hardness of heart. And then in verse 19, again, Paul says they're, they've become callous. Their hearts are, are, are so hard that they're callous, and they give themselves over to sensuality. So just a, a, there's, that's a really key section of verses there on the depravity of man.
0: Matthew Barrett in the book Salvation by Grace writes, quote, It is important to recognize here the emphasis that many of the passages examined above place on the depravity of both the heart and the mind. Theologians have called this the noetic effect of the fall. Noetic derives from the Greek nous, which means mind. Prior to sin's entrance into the world, Adam's intellectual capabilities were pure, without defilement. However, after the fall, man's mind became distorted and perverse. End quote. And I think that's that's really good. That's
1: what we're talking about with this language of in and the heart, and you know, only evil continually. There's something wrong with us. Every part of man has been affected by original sin. And that's, what again, what we mean by total when we talk about total depravity. It doesn't mean that all people are as sinful as they could be, but it means that every single person and the whole of every single person has been affected by sin. Uh, Herman Bavink says, The teaching of Scripture, after all, is not that every human lives at all times in all possible actual sins, and is in fact guilty of violating all God's commandments, it only refers to the deepest inclination, the innermost disposition, the fundamental directedness of human nature, and confesses that it is not turned towards God, but away from Him. That's the direction that we're going, or we're safe. Uh, Again, by, by total depravity, we don't mean that man is incapable of doing certain good things, but when men do these good things when we you know when when people do good works even if you want to call it that they're they're operating not from a desire of, of love for God and a desire to worship him but they really mankind loves themselves and and really lives for themselves rather than for the glory of God and that's the reason why like Augustine called the um, the righteous works of the gentiles he called them splendid vices and so there's these there's this righteousness that we sometimes see in the world but when you really get down to the heart of it at its heart, its desire is not to glorify God, and to God that is not true righteousness right. um I think that's kind of that's what we want to say about that. So man's problem is not not only that his mind and heart and desires and affections are sinful, but also because of our depravity, we're unable to remove ourselves from this dreadful condition. so we are we've seen the depravity of man, but now. What, what we want to kind of argue now is that, that because of this situation, we don't want to remove ourselves and we are unable to deliver ourselves, to save ourselves. We're unable to do anything to deliver ourselves from this dead, dreadful condition. And and theologians call this total inability. And it's kind of a subset of total depravity. Mm-hmm. So total inability. You know, John 2, 23 and 24, many people, it says there, believe in Jesus name when they saw the signs that he was doing but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man these people believed in him but they they believed in a superficial way and that's kind of a theme throughout John and and because they didn't really believe in him Jesus didn't believe in them that's and that's what that word entrusted there is he didn't He didn't believe in their belief kind of a thing because jesus knew what was in man and and then and then immediately after that in chapter three we have the whole nicodemus situation and so here's a an example of what's in man and with nicodemus we have the the teacher of israel and he's come and and he recognizes he kind of believes in jesus he's seen the signs that jesus has done and uh and he says you know, no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And so Nicodemus seems to believe in Jesus. He's seen his signs. He's seen his wonders. He recognizes that God must be with him. But now Jesus says, no, Nicodemus, I know what's in man and you, you need to be born again. You need something to happen to you that you can't really control and that you can't So why don't you read, Lauren, I guess from verse 3 to 8 of that passage
0: there. John chapter 3, verse 3 to 8. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit... He cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit.
1: Great. So Jesus tells Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you can't see the kingdom of God and unless you're born of of the water and the spirit again same thing there that that person cannot enter the kingdom of god and so you must be born again nicodemus but then jesus says just like the wind kind of blows where it wishes and and you don't really know what's going on you don't know where it comes from or where it where it's going in the same way the spirit is sovereign in in who is going to be born again so it is with everyone who is born of the spirit you can't you can't control it, Nicodemus. Mm-hmm. And just like a baby is born into this world, really not by any choice of their own, but just because God has put them in their mother's womb and they're born into this world, um, in the same way, you also need to be born again. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and that, the, the illustration there shows that something, like you said earlier, Lauren, something needs to happen from outside of you, something that you can't control. Now, in the next verses, we all know that Jesus is going to say that you need to you need to believe. So there's a responsibility yet for Nicodemus to believe. But Jesus is really telling him that, that Nicodemus, there's there's really nothing that you can do. You're some great teacher. You're so wise or whatever. The condition that you're in, you need the Spirit to do a supernatural work in you that you can't you can't control. So I, I, that's kind of one of the first of many scriptures that we're going to look at here that speak about our inability. You can't see, how are you going to believe if you can't see the kingdom of God? You need to be born again before you can see mm-hmm. it. And so you can't enter the kingdom. You 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 can't, and, and we typically think about this language as being saved, right? You can't be saved unless you're born again. And Nicodemus is going, well, how do I do that? Ah, God is going to have to do a work in your heart, Nicodemus. And that, and that that recognition of his need is what's going to, by God's grace and the way that the Spirit works to save people, it's going to make them realize there's nothing that they can do, and they're going to, he's going to call out to God and call mm-hmm. on the name of the Lord to be saved. But he won't even see it unless God does something. So that's kind of the first. Um, let's, go to, let's go to another one. Let's go to uh, 1 Corinthians 2.
0: 1 Corinthians 2 chap- chapter 2 verse 14 The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are folly to him and he does not he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned
1: Okay and in the context here the things of the spirit of God is really the gospel that Paul's been talking about all in chapter 1 and chapter 2 And so uh, the natural person you know the the person who um is in their natural state they don't accept the gospel why not well it's folly to them or earlier paul talks about it for the um
0: um message of the cross is is foolishness how does that go again to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved it is the power of god something like that yeah that sounds about about close to chapter right. 1 verse 18
1: yeah chapter one, eighteen. but but there's the the, the jews want a sign the greeks um so yeah the, to the Jews it's a stumbling block that's what i was yes. looking for to the to the Greeks it's folly and and so they don't accept these things because it's just foolishness to them they're not even able to understand it Paul says he is not able to understand the gospel because they are spiritually discerned now that in, in other words something supernatural and spiritual has to happen to somebody so that they would be saved and because you reminded me of verse 18, what is that thing that has to happen? They have to be called. Mm-hmm. God has to choose them and then call them to salvation, make them born again, and now they're going to be able to accept these things because before
0: that it's just folly and a stumbling block. And Here's a good opportunity for you, the listener, to be a good Berean and seek the scriptures to see if what we said is true in First Corinthians one eighteen as we were discussing that there a bit, but that is that is the picture there. These things are foolishness, they are folly, they need to be spiritually discerned. It's not of our own wisdom, it's not of man's own wisdom that we come to understand what this is and then choose in and of ourselves to submit to that and to repent and believe the gospel, because we can't. We are blinded to this.
1: In fact, if you if you just read that whole section in, in 1 Corinthians 1, like 8, 18, or even a, a little bit before, although I couldn't tell you exactly where, all the way to, to 2, um, 16, that just a great section that, that talks about God's election and choosing and, and how, you know, again, the natural person and won't really accept w- these things.
0: It was done to dumbfound us, to dumbfound us in our own earth, uh, fleshly wisdom. Yeah, so that we wouldn't boast, right? Exactly, that all glory goes to god because of this
1: right yeah so natural person does not and there's no exception to that the, the natural person doesn't accept it he is not able to understand them it's not that uh, the the unbelievers not able to understand the gospel that god is holy and that jesus died for sinners or whatever they can understand the facts but what paul's saying when he says understand there he means he the, the, he's not able to accept that he's not able to understand in the sense that he can he doesn't see his own sin and need Mm -hmm. of a savior because that part of it is spiritually discerned and you have to have the spirit before you have this spiritual discernment to see that i'm a sinner and christ is the savior that fits my need and Mm -hmm. and so i'm going to now come to him it's not folly anymore it's like necessity and so now i'm going to come
0: Yep. and it's something like you said the the fact of this men can understand they can understand that it's man can possess the word in his head it is when the word possesses us in our hearts that these things become real that, that they become, the spirit applies them to us and then the spiritual discernment comes because we now have the spirit, God has removed the veil from our eyes, he's removed this heart of uh, stone and given us a heart of flesh and now through the power of the spirit through the word these things are revealed to us spiritual discernment we have and then like say how how christ the the as a sacrifice how that fits our need and initially even that we have this need because we are depraved we are sinners we are like you mentioned earlier the phrase total inability we are unable to come to him in and of ourselves
1: yeah i like how you put that that whole section there and, and when you said the word veiled, it just reminded me of 2 Corinthians 4 mm-hmm. 3. The God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so that they don't see the glory of Christ. They, and, they, and that's the same idea here. They don't understand, they, they don't see any glory in mm-hmm. Christ that they would want to come to him
0: and, and live for him. And that really leads right into this next verse in John chapter 6, verse 44. Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. No one, again, very inclusive, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Not by their own volition, not because of their own desires, we're looking for salvation or any of that. No man can come to me, Jesus says, unless the Father works externally into man and draws him to Christ.
1: And yeah, that's just. I, I somebody once told me about something R.C. Sproul did on this verse. Like no one that that's kind of like there's no exceptions to this. Can that speaks about their ability coming is 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 parallel in this whole passage there to believing. Nobody's gonna believe unless there's this one exception. The father has to draw this person, and um, the father doesn't draw all people in this way because otherwise all people would come. And so, um, because we know that some people don't come, we know that, that, uh, the father doesn't do this universally. And we will talk about this word drawing later on.
0: And I've also heard the, this verse being used to say, you find all of tulip right here Mm. in this one verse, no one can come to me, total depravity, unless the father who sent me draws him, election, and I will raise him up, irresistible grace on the last day, perseverance. I think I might have missed one there. Yeah, I
1: think he did, but that, uh, yeah, the atonement, I would see that in who sent me,
0: right? Yeah, I missed missed that one, the father who sent me, yes. But we see in very small form, a small sample size here. That's great. But we see the doctrines of grace right there in Christ's own words. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day.
1: The Father draws that person, he will raise them up mm-hmm. on the last day. Very good. Uh, another, another verse on this is uh, Romans 8, 7 and 8. The mind that is set on the flesh, and the, the idea here is just, just the fleshly mind, the mind of the unbeliever. The mind of the unbeliever, let's put it that way, is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those who are in the flesh, if you aren't saved, you cannot please God. There's this impossibility. You can't submit to God's law. You don't
0: submit to God's law. In other words, you're hostile to God. If we think about that last phrase, those who are in the flesh cannot, come, p- cannot please God. If I can come to God in and of myself, in true repentance, in true faith, in true belief, apart from him having to draw me, that would be pleasing to God. That would be pleasant in his sight if I could come to him in utter dependence on him, in utter repentance and faith, in and of myself. And yet Paul abolishes that thought here, because those who are in the flesh cannot please God.
1: Yeah and actually even as i was reading it i was thinking of hebrews eleven six. without faith it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to god must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him and so faith is something that pleases god according to that verse Mm -hmm. and so when we put those two verses together we see that if if somebody cannot please god in the flesh then it's impossible for them to have faith in the flesh as Mm -hmm. well i think that's I think that's good logic and that, that works and, well there.
0: And the writer of Hebrews tells us very clearly who the author and finisher of our faith is. Yeah. From where it comes, right? Yeah. From, from mm-hmm. Jesus Christ, who's the author, finisher, the the perfecter of our faith. Yeah, good. You know, so we, we, we're
1: thinking about hostility to God. This is our, our natural mindset. Now, Now, when we think about that, it, it's not that, that every person is actively trying to resist God in everything that they do. Mm-hmm. But it's just that their natural desires are contrary to God. And so they're hostile, and they're doing the opposite of what God would want them to do. And Romans 5 earlier, you kind of see that same thing where where when we were sinners, Christ died for us, when we were enemies, if we were reconciled to God, and just that that idea there that we were we were enemies, we were sinners— when God saved us, when Christ came, and so just again, just we, we were
0: enemies and sinners. That's really all I wanted to draw from there. This next passage that we have in Ephesians two one, this is the, the verse that uh, the, the passage three verses that came to mind when we read earlier this section in, in the track. By total depravity, the track says Calvinism means that all people are so spiritually dead that they can neither repent nor believe. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2.1-3 says, And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Again, this is; these are our desires. This is what we want to do. And we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Our very nature. So when I when I hear the term, you know, the, the spiritually dead and how spiritually dead people are, Paul answers this very clearly here. We are very spiritually dead. I remember one speaker once saying in, in uh, reading this passage, and I forget exactly the who it was or in which context it was, but when when Paul says dead, in the Greek, that means dead, and he just kind of put an emphasis on that. Right? The English word is correct here. Yeah, it means dead. Yeah, in our trespasses and sins, does not mean clinging to life, does not mean we are almost dead. But now you have to choose. Yeah, do you want to die or do you want to live? Like you're drowning, and you just got to grab the rope
1: or something like that. Yeah,
0: no, and, and that's often the image, right? Yeah. Yeah. Is that that the sinner, sinners, mm-hmm. sinners we drowning, and you see that picture, a sinner, we're drowning in a pool of water. And then uh, uh, a lifeguard throws the, the a floating device, a life-saving <laughs> device, over to us, and now it's your choice. Do you cling to that and be saved, or do you let it go and, and not be saved? But if we're dead, this person isn't drowning, he's drowned. Yeah, he's drowned he, he's, and rotting on the bottom. Exactly. And then the lifeguard, Jesus, reaches in, pulls this corpse from the water, and breathes new life into him, giving life to his mortal body. Yeah, that that would be the difference in that, and how we would view it. We don't see Jesus as a lifeguard throwing out uh, a flotation device and pleading with you, please grab onto it so that I can save you. Again, Paul's words: You are dead. Jesus reaches in, pulls our dying corpse, out, our dead corpse out, and gives it new life and and like verse 4 there
1: which it's not in front of me right now but verse 4 is makes you alive with Christ mm-hmm. right that's that's what that's you know god being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us made us alive with Christ and that's what happens we were dead who made us alive god made us alive not because of any response that we had in fact the whole image of being dead is that there is no ability to respond that's what the image is exactly. intended to convey and and but when we were dead just look at, at the passage there again, if you've got your Bible in front of you. When we were dead, there was three powers kind of at work. One is the course of this world, the, the worldly influence around us. We followed that. The second one is the prince of the power of the air, the, the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Uh, in other words, the devil is working in all the disobedient mankind. Um, we were following him as well. And then we lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and our mind. And we were by nature these, these children of wrath, and so we followed the flesh. So you got the world, the flesh, and the devil. Those things held us captive. That's what we followed when we were dead. Mm-hmm. And, and again, that's, that's a state of being. We were dead. We were by our nature these children of wrath, and then Paul says, like the rest of mankind, so that the Ephesians don't just think it's just them,
0: but this is really everyone uh, was in this state. You mentioned verse 4 earlier. And so after we see this state that we're in, the Apostle Paul says, But God, not man, not your own will, your own desires, your, your own actions, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus.
1: Being made alive is equivalent there to being saved by grace. Mm -hmm. Really good. Um, MacArthur and Mayhew, just kind of following up on all this, say that... um, After kind of going through those verses themselves in in their systematic theology, they say, Therefore man's spiritual state is not one of relative neutrality, in which he is able to accept or reject God and his gospel. He is an active hater of God, Romans 8, 7, who cannot accept spiritual truth, 1 Corinthians 2, 14. The total depravity of man demonstrates the absolute sovereignty of God and salvation. Man can do nothing God must accomplish all as a gift of sovereign grace. Well, let's, um, actually, I just want to read this John Owen quote here. He says, he says, if the grace of our conversion be nothing but a moral persuasion, we have no more power of obeying it in that estate wherein we are dead in sin than a man in his grave hath in himself to live anew and come out at the next call. So, in, in other words, if, if all that that's happening in our salvation is that that someone's pleading with us to turn away from our sin with this moral persuasion turn to god turn away from your sin there's there's no power to obey that call when we're dead in our sin then a man in the grave if i called to him and said come on out you know Mm -hmm. if i call to a dead person come on out of the grave you would think i was nuts because there's no power for them they're Mm -hmm. dead well, that's the same as if, if we would call all mankind and just preach the gospel, but God wasn't working and making people alive with Christ, making them born again, making it so that they could understand and accept and whatever, and the Father's drawing them, however you want to say it. If, if all that's happening is I'm preaching the gospel, even the best that anyone could, but God's not working, then nobody's going to respond. God has to work. God has to do something, again, supernatural to make us come.
0: And we see that call when Jesus calls Lazarus Lazarus out of the grave. Jesus, God, called to him a dead body, a dead corpse. Yeah. And that call raised Lazarus from the dead, and he responded by coming forth. Yeah, And really that gives us a good image there of how Christ does that in us, but for Martha, Mary, or any of Lazarus's friends, for them to have stood by the grave and calling to him would have been foolish. Yeah. Because he can't respond lest life is given to him by the word of God.
1: Yeah. Now, when we say that, we also recognize that as we preach the gospel, God is calling people mm-hmm. through our preaching of the gospel so that some actually will come. Exactly. Because otherwise, nobody would come. But we just still preach the gospel to everyone because we don't know who God's going to work in. And we preach the gospel because we know it's through that preaching of the gospel that we are made alive with Christ or born again. Mm-hmm. And in fact, first Peter talks about that. And James one seventeen as well. First Peter chapter one, like 18 ish. He talks about that. You were born again through the word, uh, but we don't have to go to those. I, and I, I'm feeling like there's, there's more we could say, you know, Scripture talks about us as being of our father the devil. Scripture talks about us as being slaves to various passions and pleasures. That's Titus 3.3. 3. Um, Ezekiel 36 says how we need a new heart. God has to take out a heart of stone and and give us a heart of flesh so that we'll respond. These are all different ways to speak about our our state. Blind, in fact, don't I have I do let me let me just uh, I think I kind of gave a summary now here's a here's a summary of just all of these scriptures that we've looked at um, as far as total inability goes Uh, man is dead in trespasses and sins man is enslaved to his desires man is a slave to sin man is unable to bear or hear God's word man is unable to understand God's word man is unable to receive God's word Man has a heart of stone, he cannot change himself from this condition, he's unable to please God, Uh, he can't see the things of God unless he's born again, he can't enter the kingdom of God unless he's born again, and and that's really just a summary of all that we've looked at in our episode here today. Jeremiah 13.23 says, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do, who are accustomed, sorry, then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil.
0: If the Ethiopian can change his skin or the leopard his spots, right? Then you can do good.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, But of course, the Ethiopian can't change his skin, nor can the the white man change his skin. Uh, The leopard can't change his spots. We also can't change our nature. God has to change our nature. And that, that really puts us in this position where we're absolutely dependent on god and i think that's exactly where we need to be as sinners that's where the the gospel that's where all of what we're looking at here drives us to recognize our our desperate need of like you said a few times something outside of ourselves to act on our behalf
0: And that wraps up this episode on total depravity in our series on Examining Calvinism. And to listen to our podcast, you can go to the website, abideintheword.wordpress.com or at thechristianpodcastcommunity.org. Also, you can find a lot of other great podcasts on doctrine, life, culture, and all those things. But as we looked at total inability, total depravity, let's end on this verse that really answers that question or that that comment that we saw on that tract where it says Calvinism means that all people are so spiritually dead that they can neither repent nor believe. Let's end on God's word and see what Jesus himself says again in John 6, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day.